Welcome to the Faculty Coffee Break Podcast, hosted by the Center for Advancement of Faculty Excellence, or as we like to call it, the CAFE, at St. Francis College in Brooklyn, New York. Rooted in a long history of faculty achievement and commitment to student success at St. Francis, the CAFE promotes research, innovation, and high-quality academic engagement through an evidence-based, equity-minded approach to teaching, learning, and faculty development. My name is Dr. Molly Mann, and I'm the director of the CAFE and host of the Faculty Coffee Break podcast. Today, I'm delighted to share my conversation with Dr. Marlon D. Joseph. Dr. Joseph, originally from Trinidad and Tobago, earned his bachelor's degree in biology and mathematics from St. Francis College. After graduating, he spent three years in the International Projects Unit of the National Institute of Higher Education Research Science and Technology, where he developed and coordinated a variety of public health projects for the National Science Center of Trinidad and Tobago. Dr. Joseph received his Master's of Public Health degree in Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the City University of New York Graduate School of Public Health and Health Policy. He is a graduate of the doctoral program in epidemiology at Boston University School of Public Health and joined the Presto research team in 2020. Dr. Joseph's research focuses on men's reproductive health and lifestyle factors. So I'm very excited to talk to you about this topic of student-centered pedagogy because I know um, from speaking to you previously that your experiences and your work as a professor are really informed by your experiences as a student. So you really are living this idea of putting the student at the center. Um, So let me start off by asking you, what what does student-centered pedagogy mean to you? Student-centered pedagogy means to me uh, really having the student engage in the material, uh, learn from interactive methods, uh, being able to apply that information in uh, many different ways, and also building teamwork and um, collaboration with others that may be also in the class, but uh, in the future with their future colleagues and their future professions. So um, I think making sure that uh, the students are engaged and feel uh, committed to this endeavor. Yeah, and I I know that you really work to make sure that students are interacting in in the classroom and that they're really actively learning. So can you tell us a little bit about what you do to make that happen? Okay, um, so a little bit of my background between undergrad and masters, um, I was a research science project officer at the National Institute of Higher Education, Science and Technology in Trinidad and Tobago, my uh, home country. And um, I was really fortunate to get a lot of training that was based on interactive methods. Um, What we had to do was change all of the material that was in paper, in books, into interactive um, forums, whether they were interactive games, interactive kiosks, uh, you know, uh, being able to change the mode of delivery to something that really engages the student and has them, you know, put out information from their own training, from some of their own background experience, and also to mirror and uh, match that with the work that we we are trying to, you know, move forward on. And um, so 
taken that background of, of interactive science uh, exhibition and del delivery to the class classrooms, it was a really, really nice experience, uh, especially because I worked in the laboratory for a few years before um, joining the full-time faculty. And um, this allowed me to, one, engage with the students in a much more uh, interactive, granular way, and um, form teams within the class and encourage them to um, build those skills of um, you know, working together and teamwork. So I think having the ability to you know, take the material, digest the material, and then also put it back out into interactive forms is a very important um, learning strategy for students. And we as uh, professors have to be able to um, foster that ability for them to um, make innovations in the learning process. Yeah, so as you've kind of alluded to, you have a long history at, at St. Francis that started when you were a student, right? So can you tell us a little bit about that? What were you like as a student? Were you interested in the sciences then? You know, how, how did you get from, from being that student in the classroom to where you are now? All right, um, so my journey at St. Francis College started about 20 years ago when I came to St. Francis as an international student on a presidential scholarship from Trinidad and Tobago. Um, one year out of high school, really willing and excited to see the world. St. Francis was really um, an exciting opportunity to, to live in you know, the heartbeat of the world in New York City. And um, coming to St. Francis, I was very excited about all of the international students and the diversity that I saw here. And um, that was, you know, in itself a, a learning and growing experience. So, you know, I learned from my professors, but I also learned from my peers. Um, after graduation, I worked for Colgate Palmolive as a research scientist, a junior research scientist. And um, that was basically a lot of uh, laboratory science and really, really um, helped me um, build those skills in, uh, you know, private uh, industry setting which um, gave me confidence to you know, look at other um, approaches that could be um, utilized with the right funding and with the right um, you know, attention given to that type of development. Um, going back to Trinidad, I was able to use some of those skills to build many interactive exhibits, to bring in a health and wellness uh, exhibition from Austria, from um, other parts of the world, and then coming back, I started my master's program in biostatistics and epidemiology. And why did I go into this? It was primarily because of the fact that while I was building those exhibits um, for the National Science Center in Trinidad and Tobago, I realized that there was a lack of um, epidemiological data and a lack of statistics that were critical to um, the delivery of those interactive um, forums. So um, always like in a challenge, I decided to um, pursue uh, academic career in epidemiology. And I was lucky enough to uh, be invited to teach at St. Francis while I was in my master's. Um, it happened um, because of maybe interactive methods. Uh, I came in to help 
Miss um, Leah Covenant in the lab with some microbiology techniques for the students that were um, under her, you know, tutelage. And um, that really um, kind of set the tone for, you know, engaging with the students in a one-to-one -one manner and being able to share information so that they can use it and then share that to others. Um, I felt that um, the labs in particular was a very good place to encourage this interactive development. Um, so although they would have a protocol, we were always um, looking for ways to innovate and change that into um, even more exciting, um, involving techniques. And uh, um, that really helped. Uh, continuing on with my PhD work at Boston University in epidemiology, we um, had a lot of uh, you know, epidemiologies, a lot of surveys, a lot of interactive methods for engaging the participants and taking some of that um, back from the actual training as epidemiologists to the classroom as a professor. I was able to um, do some surveys and do some uh, you know, student feedback uh, techniques to get more information about what students really liked. And um, being a fun-loving person, I try to um, encourage it so that it's fun for the students to do. And once they're having fun, they tend to um, lose some of the, uh, you know, you know, hesitation they may have for engaging themselves into a topic. And that really, really helped um, develop me and my students and the classes that I taught into being much more interactive. Great. Yeah. Can you give us, tell us what that looks like in the classroom. Can you give us an example of what are, you know, what's one of those techniques that you use to make it, make it fun for students, make it engaging? Sure. So, um, for example, I taught a lot of anatomy and physiology um, techniques, which um, sometimes we would have, you know, we'll do the skeletal, and skeletal system. Uh, the skeletal system, we have to remember all 206 bones, uh, you know, at first glance, it may seem like a daunting task, but as the students started to um, see the material as important to their development, they knew that they had to get it done. So, you know, on that sense, one student could take it as a complete engrossment of that information by just diving in and studying all night. But for others who don't see things that way, they were trying to think of ways to, to get this done. So one of the methods that I developed was, uh, um, it's called the Bonified Game Show. And the Bonified Game Show, we had this interactive method of pulling up the skeleton onto the um, smart board. And I will have the groups, which was already, luckily for me, set up in nice tables so I could have each table be a team. And we would have a game show, something like a Jeopardy, where um, I would have the students write out all of the bones, all 206, we would put them into a bowl. All right, they were all folded up, so they were hidden from the students. And each student would have to come up, grab or chit, which would have the bone in it, and unfold it spell it, well, recite it to the class so that they get the practice of seeing the technical terms in the correct way. And then they would have 
a minute to find that bone on the interactive software that we had. And um, if they did not find it, their teammates were able to help them um, by coming up and supporting within 30 seconds. If not, some other group in the class had the opportunity to um, take those points by um, coming up and doing it like Jeopardy or Family Feud style. Um, the students, what I saw from that, it was the students really engaged. By the end of the second week, they were asking for each class to have a session like that where they were able to compete, but also learn and do it in a fun way. So that encouraged me to start making more um, opportunities for this interactive uh, approach. So we went from the bonafide game to um, making um, designs for, um, you can see here, little designs for different movements, using the movements to um, describe articulations of the body. Um, that's anatomy and physiology, which is, you know, somewhat biological and, you know, gets to some of the, you know, raw aspects of our human anatomy. Um, for other classes that were a little bit more abstract, such as my epidemiology class, I used the um, opportunity to talk about central uh, tendencies or central measures, such as the mean, median, and mode, by asking the class to line up, um, ask them to stand up, go to the front of the class, line up in order of height, all right? And they would all line up, and then we would go through what was the meaning of the average? You know, how would you do that? You know, they would say, well, we'll have to take everybody's height and we would have to divide it by the amount of people here. And then we started getting into like techniques of, you know, reducing measurement error. So how would you set up your protocol for measuring? What would be the right tools for measuring? Once we understood those aspects of experimentation, we started looking at how we could apply that. What were things like the median and the mode and how were they different from the arithmetic mean? All by doing uh, interactive methods such as seeing yourself against the measure of the class and where we can count and order people, order the groups and you know things that they would do on paper but sometimes could be a little monotonous, you know, and it's, it's sometimes not always straightforward for all students. So for them to see it in a, a real life interactive approach really helped them bring those things home. Um, otherwise, um, I try to encourage student discussion in class. I try to um, have them put personal point of views into their written assignments. I also try to um, have them present every semester on their work to their class and build that opportunity for them to um, be the expert because uh, you know once they realize that they are the ones that are driving the discussion, they tend to put a lot more emphasis into making sure some of the things that they haven't understood other people do. And that, that really um, drives that. So um, it helps because it breaks some of the ice in class, which um, some students might be shy, or some students might be a um, little bit unsure of how to actually apply these things. And with that taught process, they really do get the opportunity to apply it to many other um, classes if they, if they can.
Yeah, I, I really like that um, you focus on having students bring their whole selves to class and really caring for the whole student in class. And, I, and you model that for your students, right, by bringing your whole self into, into the classroom. So do you want to talk a little bit about that in your, you know, your decision process and moving through that and how you do that? Yes. Um, so one of the aspects and one of the advantages of being an alumni of the school and teaching in school for more than 10 years now is um, the ability to put myself in the students' shoes. And... Um, I remember some of the classes that were really exciting. And I also remember some of the classes that didn't go in the same way. And for me, um, I thought that some of that extra time that was devoted to now re-looking information over and you know, trying to uh, digest it in a better way could be spent um, by the students formulating new ways of how to um, use that information in a way to describe it to their peers. And once they started doing that and giving that feedback, a lot of ideas started coming out. Now, um, for me, I um, always tell my students, I learn so much from them every semester and I look forward to every new semester because there's always a new lesson for me to learn culturally, uh, you know, emotionally or you know, socially and politically from their background. Some of that comes up in discussion, but it also comes up in their um, written assignments and the, um, the way they approach their own projects. Now, I think um, the project-oriented approach to classes helps them manage time, manage, um, you know, group work, and also put... Um, emphasis on delivery of a quality product or quality, uh, you know, assignment and 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 stage. Um, for me, I I hope that when I talk to my students about my background growing up in Trinidad, um, of seeing different trees grow or understanding the science of the ocean from surfing or from soccer, um, helps them, you know bring in their own personal experiences for um, that teachable learning moment, you know? And um, I, I really, really always encourage them to, to share some of their um, cultural diversity with the class because we have this um, very, very unique opportunity in Brooklyn, in New York City in general, but in Brooklyn to have students and people from all around the world right next to us and for them to share some of their background to help us learn about the world. And that, that, that is um, something that not all institutions, even they may be elite, may not always have, you know, and we, we have that and that's something that is um, a blessing. So, a tree grows in Brooklyn, but many more things grow in Brooklyn. And um, I encourage them to always think about how they can share that with others. And that brings in ideas of diversity, inclusion. Um, it also brings in a diversity of thought of the subject matter. And um, perspective is very important. Um, we have to remember that we learn a lot from our students and giving them the opportunity to speak to their peers and to us in that um, 
professional sense with their presentations, with their through their papers, we we get a lot of information that we can then use in the future to to develop better pedagogical strategies for engaging with the students. Yeah, that's wonderful. And you know, it occurs to me as you're saying that there there are so many layers of learning that are happening at the same time, right? There's the content of your, you know, what you're teaching in anatomy and physiology, but there's also the learning of just, you know, seeing you model that practice of, of you know, um, balancing, you know, who you are at work, who you are at home, and how you um, integrate all of those selves together. Um, and, and having students watch that and, and see, have that modeled for them is really important too, as they, as they move on to their professional lives as well. Definitely yeah. work hard and play hard, learn hard, study hard and succeed hard, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah, yes. absolutely. And that also sounds to me close to something I, I know um, you talked about when we spoke before, which is this apprenticeship model of learning. Um, and I, I find that really interesting. So I'm hoping you can tell us more about that as well. Sure. Um, so I'm glad that you brought that up because um, I, hold it as a, you know something very dear to me uh, and um, I think something that sometimes is not utilized in the best way for a lot of other um, communities that uh, have grown up um, learning things from seeing other people doing it. Um, we think of many cultural uh, you know cultural ways of learning and some cultures are more in depth in you know the process of teaching receiving that information putting it back out in straight form but for many other cultures they throughout time learned via apprenticeship you know learning from someone that's a master of the trade learning the you know unique techniques that come from experience and having um, the ability to go to someone to problem solve. And so the, the aspect of apprenticeship uh, and the aspect of that mental learning is very much important to all students and all academics. And, um, you know, sometimes we may just because of the situation of the class may not have the time to give everybody one-to-one -one apprenticeship or, you know, that, experience, but if set up right or you know embedded into the strategy from the beginning, um, you have a opportunity there to really engage so many more students um, that learn differently, that have huge potential, but may not always um, see the purely um, you know read, remember, and reciprocate method, all right? Um, I, I do believe that um, having the ability to talk to someone that has that experience or just, you know, someone that they can bounce ideas off of is, is very interesting. With apprenticeship, I think we, you know, we in general, society has so much more to um, engage in this, in this um, technique and learn and share and, be able to, you know, thrive. Absolutely. And I think that really gets to the heart of what we are talking about when we talk about student-centered pedagogy or student-centered teaching. I know, you know, some of, some of the resistance that I've heard to that concept 
is about, um, you know, it, instructors who worry that it uh, devalues their own expertise, you know, as, as the instructor. But really what it is, is what, exactly what you're talking about there is, is understanding that learning happens in relationship and in community. Um, and and it, it finds ways to build those. So and, I and, and something else in, in, in that same sense. Um, so this semester I'm teaching a couple uh, senior seminar courses, uh, all based on re research and being able to deliver research paper at the end of the semester. And um, we had a general team of you know healthcare management issues. And from there, I encourage the students to bring to the class their issues that they wanted to work. Because I think that is something else that, that needs to also be addressed, that when students want to engage in research, it's sometimes best to have them take ownership of the topics that they want to research. That brings in the enthusiasm because they initially would have some curiosity and that curiosity would drive the you know, the goals forward. And, you know, a lot of times students may look out or reach out for research and, you know, people say, well, do this or do that. And they may not be completely engaged in it in the same way because it wasn't, not that it's not their idea, but just that it may not have been completely their um, most exciting thought. But if given a general team, and you ask them to then think of a project, think of a hypothesis, think of things that they would like to look at, it gives them ownership of it. And we want to develop researchers that have ownership of their, um, you know, whatever investigations they go about doing experimentally. Absolutely, yeah. So I, every um, person who comes on this podcast, I'm asking everyone the same two questions at the end. So I'm going to ask them to you now. So first I will ask, what has been your favorite teaching moment so far? Uh, my favorite teaching moment uh, so far has been, that's a very good question. I think that one of the things that, you know, I can see and brings a lot of joy to me um, every single time I come into the Brooklyn Heights area is the um, Brooklyn Bridge Park, which um, when I was a student there, we would look from the promenade and we would see abandoned warehouses and, um, you know, the waterfront was mostly industrial. Um, over the last 20 years, we all know that it has changed into very, been a very, very vibrant part of the city and a very, very picturesque and scenic area. Now, one of the questions that came up from that was, should they have kept the pairs? And um, I was very excited when um, Dr. Nolan, the past chairman of the biology department called me. Um, she called me one afternoon and said, I have a project for you. It's an exciting project. Would you be able to do this? I said, sure, what is it? She said, well, you'll have to go to the Brooklyn Bridge Park at 3 a.m. in the morning. And I said, all right, okay. Another time I was living in Williamsburg, so it wasn't too far to get to this, um, the park at three o'clock, took a cab, got out, walked in. It's like, you're not supposed to be in the park. There were cameras flashing and things like, all these things I didn't even know happened in the park at night. But 
and walked in and just like out of a James Bond movie, a little skiff came and met me on the waterfront and we jumped onto the skiff and we took uh, a kayak uh, attached with a sonar, all right? And that sonar was used to map the fish patterns. So we did uh, grids uh, in the open water and also song scary underneath the pairs in the middle of the night to map um, the fish patterns. And what we saw was that the fish uh, really liked the um, pairs because the small fish could hide there and there was um, enough sunlight that came in from the different angles of the sun to have plants and proper oxygen and all of that stuff for healthy water. And the small fish hide there and the big fish go there to hunt. And therefore it was thriving, uh, you know, it was a thriving ecosystem. And instead, and so the, I guess the city or the Brooklyn Bridge Park Foundation decided from some of that research, and it wasn't my research, it was something that was uh, from Rutgers, but um, we at St. Francis were in collaboration with, decided to not uh, demolish the pairs and to keep the pairs so that they can use them. And now um, when, we, when I see the St. Francis College um, soccer team playing on the soccer fields that are on the pairs, or we go for ice skating or roller skating, or we go to a concert on the pairs, I think of like how some of these simple um, fun things have you know, fundamental impact uh, for future generations. And I try to encourage that for the students. So the students have always been um, doing a lot of water quality stuff. Um, my most important thing out of all of that was that you can't judge a book by the cover and that you have to be able to sometimes go with the flow and that brings about, um, you know, beautiful, blooms sometimes. Um, I don't know if that answered the question fully because it probably wasn't in the traditional classroom, but the students, they all learn and love that experience when I tell them about that. And for me, I get to um, engage my own little um, James Bond because we were coming up sunset, sunrising um, on the Manhattan skyline on a skiff, big boats around, and we have, you know, a small kayak with tons of equipment mapping it. And um, without being able to experience that, we may not have appreciated um, the pairs as much as we do now too. So that's, that's one thing. On another hand, um, I enjoy seeing my students um, graduate and go on to their grad programs, go on to their academic or, or to careers. Um, with the academic training that they have, and then coming back and uh, sharing with their students, um, sharing with fellow students their experience and their, their work. Um, I, I would say that those are some of my greatest um, experiences in the classroom sense, you know? Because I think of the classroom as the world, so maybe that's that's, that's yes, it. absolutely. And you know, as you're saying, I mean, our we're so lucky to have this location. The view is beautiful. We have these wonderful opportunities around us. So absolutely, yeah, great. And so, what is something that um, 
is maybe a challenge for you in teaching, like something that you just kind of, you know, bump up against frequently that you're always trying to kind of, you know, refine for yourself or work through um, that might help somebody else who's going through a similar thing? Um, I would say, um, you know, having the time that is necessary for going through and doing the proper evaluation of students, which um, is a science in itself of how you set up your class, how you uh, put out the grading criteria, how you actually do that in, in the reality of things. Um, that, that can be sometimes, um, you know, the most mind intensive part of it where you have to, you know, all of the exciting parts of interacting with the students and doing the teaching and being in the classroom is finished. And now you're with all of the data from the students uh, and trying to make sure that you, um, one, encourage all students to go forward, two, you reward those who have done well, and three, you encourage those who need to also um, probably do a little bit more um, and emphasizing um, where they go wrong and how to um, make improvements. Um, so I, do, I don't see it as a challenge more than um, an opportunity for me to grow and um, also help my students grow. Um, so not a bad thing. Other than that, um, I enjoy every moment of teaching. As I said, I came from a family of teachers. So my grandfather was a, um, had a principal, my uncles were principals, my mom taught nurses, my dad has a media and advertising, he taught uh, many photographers. And um, I, I feel like it's something natural and it allows me to be the extrovert that I am. It allows me to learn a lot from my students and it allows me to keep myself young because I always learn a lot from the students. So, you know, <laughs> they will tell me when I'm asynchronous <laughs> or oh, oh, anachronism. Well, I say, Professor, are you wearing bell bottoms to school today? <laughs> Oh, That's wonderful. So, and I completely agree. Every, you know, every teaching challenge is also an opportunity to um, better connect with, with the students. This, it's, it's, it's always an interesting experience when you have that student that um, wants to go above and beyond and is willing to bring their techniques that they see as improvements to the class and shared with the student, um, shared with students, shared with the professors. And being able to do that and for me as a young professor in the faculty i also hope that i can share these techniques with other faculty members to uh, engage um, the student body in even more ways and for me to learn from other faculty members some of the techniques that um, has been successful for them engaging the students and i'm very grateful for the cafe for having event and podcast like this and um, this uh, attention that we all need for building ourselves into even better versions of us and even better version of the school. Absolutely. And I know that there are a lot of faculty who will listen to this and be able to learn from you and everything that you're doing in the classroom with students. So Dr. Marlon Joseph, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you.
Thank you for listening to the Faculty Coffee Break podcast, hosted by the Center for Advancement of Faculty Excellence at St. Francis College. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll share it with a friend or colleague and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to know more about today's episode, please visit our webpage for show notes and transcripts. And join us again soon for more conversations about innovative pedagogy, curriculum design and assessment, and faculty development. The primary purpose of the Faculty Coffee Break podcast is to educate and share ideas for teaching and learning, curricular and co-curricular design, and faculty development. The podcast does not constitute advice or services, and the views expressed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect those of St. Francis College. Thank you.